We've come to the point in our service where we get to corporately read the Word of God. Please stand with me. If you are able, turn your Bibles to Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. That is the uh, entirety of the chapter 20 of the book of Joshua. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him to in, into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and uh, Kiriath uh, Rabbah, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. There, these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel, and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so there, may, there he, that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, till he stood before the congregation. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to your hearts. You may be seated as our brother Jeff Oliver comes to preach to us today. It is my great privilege and uh, delight to stand before you uh, this morning. Let me extend uh, my thanks to the elders of this congregation for their kind invitation again to minister God's word to you. I do bring with me the greetings of our congregation. That's uh, Grace Baptist, Reformed Baptist Church in Placerville. And uh, as uh, you have already assured me of your prayers for us, I would assure you of our prayers for you as a congregation. And we're uh, delighted and always to remember you as I know you remember us in the fellowship of prayer. So let's turn to God's Word now and to the book of Joshua and to chapter 20, in which we read of these cities of refuge. One of the great truths of Holy Scripture is the fact that the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens, the Scripture tells us. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. The Lord does everything according to His predetermined decree, and He always does what is right. Genesis 18, verse 25, in those well-known words of the Scripture, quoted directly 
the just judge of all the earth, does right. But from our human perspective, accidents happen. Accidents happen. Events occur often with unforeseen, but nevertheless terrible consequences. Consequences that we did not design, we did not plan, we did not desire. At times, sadly, tragically, unintentional acts can even result in the death of another individual. This is the sad and tragic reality of a fallen world in general, and in particular, the circumstance that lays behind God's appointment here in Joshua chapter 20 of certain cities in the promised land designated as places of refuge to protect certain individuals. So what do we find here in this chapter? Well, we could summarize it like this. Joshua 20 verses 1 through 9 contains a list of six cities within Israel that served as places of protection for those guilty of manslaughter showing us that God is a God of mercy and grace who provides refuge and safety to all who will flee to the appointed place. As we unpack this chapter and think about what it teaches us, we are going to consider five things this morning. And they're outlined on the back of the bulletin, if you would like to follow along or take notes under these headings. So first of all, we're going to consider an acknowledged reality. Secondly, accidental death. Thirdly, important lessons. Fourthly, the refuge cities. And then lastly, the application and exhortation, flee for refuge. So first of all, then, an acknowledged reality, verses 1 through 3. Given that human accidents occur, and in particular here, accidents resulting in unintended death, the Lord spoke to Joshua and had him instruct the people of Israel to appoint certain cities as places of refuge. Verses 1 and 2. Now, this was not something entirely new. The Lord had already given directions earlier for these kinds of cities through his servant Moses. We read of that in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, and the book of Deuteronomy, Chapter 4, verses 41 and through 43, and Deuteronomy 19, 2 through 9. And so as soon as the land was securely in Israel's possession following the conquest, God spoke to Joshua to see that these cities were set aside and designated for this special and particular purpose. 
Now, in this, we see that the Bible, God's Word, recognizes the diversity of ethical situations that we encounter in this world. We might ask the very important question this morning. Is it wrong to take the life of another person? Is it wrong to take the life of another person? Well, you may already have had an answer occur to you, and you're saying it already in your mind. But the right answer to that question in a fallen world is, it depends. Now, before you ask me to leave, and the elders never invite me to this pulpit ever again, let me, let me explain. It depends upon the context and the circumstances. Scripture teaches, for instance, the legitimacy of capital punishment and just war in a fallen world. But what about other circumstances where there is loss of life? In particular, what about premeditated murder? The Scripture clearly teaches, though sadly we might have to say that much more frequently and much more um, clearly and much more forcefully in our own day and generation. But the Scripture clearly teaches premeditated murder is wrong. Thou shalt not, and as it, we ought to correctly uh, render it, it's not thou shalt not kill. There are some circumstances where killing is lawful. It is, thou shalt not unlawfully kill. Thou shalt not murder, as we read in the sixth commandment. And so here, the question comes, what if you kill somebody accidentally? This is not premeditated murder. This is not the unlawful um, malice of forethought, if you like, the legal language of our courts, um, putting to death. What if it happens accidentally? It's not done uh, with premeditation. The death does not occur by cold planning and intent. Well, here God tells Joshua to set aside cities for this kind of circumstance. If anyone were to strike and kill his neighbor, but do so accidentally, unintentionally, without that malice of forethought, then that person should not have to bear the penalty of capital punishment. That's what Joshua chapter 20 is dealing with here. Instead, he was to flee to one of these designated cities, and there find safety from the avenger of blood, this individual that we read of in verse 3. Now, who is the avenger of blood? I think I can probably safely say you have not encountered one in this past week. You've probably not encountered one even in this past month or this past year or even in all of your life. Uh, who is or who was the avenger of blood? Well, in the ancient world, and in particular in ancient Israel, 
This was a relative of the deceased person who had been killed who had the right and responsibility even to act on behalf of the family to pursue in particular a murderer and to see that justice was done. It was part of justice, of due process in ancient Israel. But somebody who was guilty of unintentionally killing someone, what we call manslaughter, should be and could be kept safe from that individual, from the avenger of blood, and from the penalty of death. And so that is what we see here, and that's what we come to next as we come in the second place, not only to an acknowledged reality, but to the fact and reality of accidental death, verses 4 through 6, accidental death. And so if you lived in ancient Israel and unintentionally caused a death, you would then flee to the nearest city of refuge. As we'll see a little later when we come to this point, these were cities distributed through all of the uh, possessed land of Israel so that the one would be relatively close by. When you came to that city, the elders would hear the case, the case of you, or a case of any such individual, and then would take that person into the city and provide him with a place to stay, verse 4. Now, if the avenger of blood was hot on your heels and he arrived at the city gates, the elders would not allow him entry to pursue you or to pursue any such party in question, verse 5. And so the initial temporary sanctuary guaranteed protection until the case was fully heard and a decision was rendered concerning that individual. Now it's very important to note here that after seeking asylum in a city of refuge, the individual had to stand trial before the whole congregation of that city, verse 6. A person could not just turn up to one of these locations. He could not just assert, well, you know, it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. And simply on saying those words, he was granted refuge and granted some automatic pardon. That was not how it worked. If the accused proved that the death he caused happened truly, accidentally, unintentionally, then the congregation were responsible to declare that as a judicial, formal rendering of judgment. And then they would declare his innocence of murder and protect him then from the retaliation at the hand of the avenger of blood. And so after that congregation determined that the manslayer, as he is called here, accidentally killed his victim, he then had to remain there if he was to be given safety. He couldn't just then return to his home automatically. Um, they would give him sanctuary, but he had to remain within the boundaries of that city until the death of the then current high priest, and then he was permitted to return home. Well, all of this might seem somewhat unusual, 
unfamiliar certain, uh, certainly to, to many of us. Uh, this is not part of due process in our land, is it, for the uh, crime of manslaughter. So what are we to learn from this? Uh, if you were with us in the Sunday school hour, I was saying when it come to preach the book of Joshua, um, it's not a case of simply giving a historical address on ancient judicial practices in the land of Canaan during the generation of Joshua. What does this have to say to us here gathered together this morning as a congregation? Well, there are a number of important lessons. First of all, the regulations for these cities of refuge stress the importance of life. It did so then, and it does so now. It is tragic, and we should never think of it in any other terms, when anyone is killed, even accidentally. Here, God would not allow the avenger to spill yet more blood in an act of unjust retribution. We have a common saying, don't we, in our culture, um, that two wrongs don't make a right. And that summarizes the point here. There was a wrong, a wrong of degree and kind in the manslaughter here, the unintentional killing, but it was not the crime of murder, of intentional killing. And therefore, the Lord makes provision that therefore there would not be unjust, unrighteous retribution from the avenger of blood here in his pursuing of the manslayer. We're taught here that the Lord values life. Again, that's a message we must stress. We must repeat again and again in our own day and generation. We often think it was only in ancient civilizations that they had such a, a trivializing and such a minimizing of life and uh, slaughtered so many so easily. But it's true today, is it not? Just in the same way. Maybe not in the identical circumstances but nevertheless still true in principle. But the Lord values life, and we should too. And this is demonstrated here for us. As we fast forward to our own day and generation, uh, when we think about the many things that are before our eyes on the big screens of our movie theaters, on our TV screens at home, films, TV shows. So many of them bring many scenes of just gratuitous violence, don't they? Um, often it's said, if you don't have enough of them, then people won't watch anymore. They're not exciting enough. I remember illustrating that from my own experience. When I was a boy, I liked cop shows, crime shows, solving the murders, all of those things. But when I was younger, the incident was just to get the plot going. You didn't have to see it all being done. Often the camera would cut away. You didn't see the person being murdered. You just knew that they'd been. And then the great hero, Sherlock Holmes, whoever he was, got to work, right, and solved the case. But it wasn't about the gratuitous violence. Now you've got to see it all in graphic detail, don't you? 
And somehow you can't get people to watch those things anymore unless the violence is in there. Not just at the beginning, but in repeated, and in the middle and at the end. One commentator observes this. He says, the more that this is before our eyes on films and TV screens and so on, we become desensitized to such violence and death. It doesn't shock us so much anymore. Um, we can watch it and go, oh, okay, and now let's get on to whatever the rest of the show is about. He then goes on to say this, quote, As Christians, we must be on our guard lest we begin to feel that way, referring to being desensitized to violence and death. Not just about a shooting that might have occurred a thousand miles away from us, but about those things that are in front of our eyes every day. About abortions that occur in our own towns and neighborhoods. Because he goes on to draw this sobering conclusion. He says this, quote, Once we have been around a sin long enough, once it is talked about enough and practiced enough, we become insensitive to it. The edge gets taken off its horror. But we need to remember God values life. And we must keep that truth ever before us, lest we grow callous to sin and end up implicitly endorsing what we explicitly say we reject. End quote. The Lord values life, and we should too. But secondly here, this passage teaches us that these cities of refuge teach us about the importance of justice, the importance of justice. Running through this passage and undergirding its basic procedures is a key principle of biblical justice. Here the principle is that one is innocent until proven guilty. We find that as, as a cornerstone of justice of many of our uh, nations and jurisdictions, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. Well, this was a principle that the Lord implemented long before it was in our other civil codes of our own day. Innocent until proven guilty was the principle reflecting the rules for these cities. How gracious and merciful it was of the Lord to provide a way for that principle to be expressed in the life of Israel. How gracious it was of the Lord to provide an assumed innocence for the manslayer until the case could be properly adjudicated. As we think about that, that principle of justice, whether practiced ancient or modern, it should be a cause of great thanksgiving to God for his mercy and grace. The fact that we have the opportunity to proclaim and defend innocence and ourselves to be presumed innocence until proven otherwise is a great blessing and benefit in our life. And as we are thankful for that, and I trust we are this morning, 
We should also remember that against the backdrop of many people who live in parts of the world who do not have that blessing and benefit, do not have that freedom. We were praying this morning uh, for the persecuted church. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ live under the oppression of jurisdictions where that is not afforded to them, a presumed innocence until proven guilty. They're deprived of justice. And so as we thank the Lord for what he has given to us and the blessing and benefit that we have in the place that the Lord has located us, we were thinking about that earlier in the service and saying we worship as a congregation here. These are the days and the place in which the Lord has located us. And we may have many difficulties to face, but we still have many blessings and many freedoms and many liberties and many just practices for which we can give thankful, for which we can be thankful. And we should and truly be that again this morning. If we truly value and prize the principle of innocence until proven guilty, then we also ought to ask ourselves by way of application and the lesson here, do we individually practice it? We might admire it here in principle, in cities of refuge in ancient Israel. We might admire it and approve of it as enshrined in the uh, particular uh, jurisdiction and in its law and practice of where we live. But how about ourselves as individuals? Not, I don't know that we have any justice here amongst us, please correct me afterwards if we do, who formally has responsibility in those kinds of ways or any other uh, um, particular um, role in the justice system. I'm not particularly referring to that, though it applies to that. But what about how we deal with each other individually? How often do we make assumptions and jump to conclusions about one another? We try, condemn, and execute each other. Sometimes in our thoughts, certainly. Sometimes even in our words, possibly, and sometimes even in our actions. Before we know the matter, the facts of the matter, we have appointed ourselves as judge, jury, and executioner, avengers of blood, assumed we know everything we need to know, assumed then the worst about someone without stopping to find out what actually happened. Our forefathers reflected upon this in the Westminster Larger Catechism in Question and Answer 145. There, their response in that question and answer was to warn us that, quote, receiving and countenancing evil reports, stopping our ears against just defense, And evil suspicion are all violations of the ninth commandment, the commandment not to bear false witness. And so when we reserve judgment and when we restrain ungodly and unrighteous suspicion in our hearts and minds, until the truth of the matter is 
clear, then we not only grant the assumption of innocence to the other person, as we see enshrined here by the Lord's command, but we also maintain that loving and truthful attitude that we're commanded to do as we live with one another. And so we see here, observing the rules of the cities of refuge is a very practical matter, isn't it, amongst the people of God. It's an expression today as much as it was in Joshua's day of love for neighbor as love for ourselves. Well, then the third lesson here that these cities demonstrate is the lesson of the importance of mercy, the importance of mercy. God here reached out in his love and mercy and grace to the manslayer and spared his life because he is a merciful God. We read that both in Old Testament and New Testament. Deuteronomy 4.31, God is merciful. James 5.11. Let me ask you, as I ask myself this morning, as we let the word of God search our hearts, shine the light into the very dark recesses of our being, are we merciful as our God is merciful? Can brethren, can your neighbor approach you and know that you are merciful? Or do they find you, one of these, to be implacable to any appeal, to any case being presented of the crime being unintended, though still yet a crime? Is our first impulse to want to exact punishment. We want the strict letter of the law. Reminds you, if you know of the Shakespeare play, The Merchant of Venice, reminds me of my school days, so I had to study it. And the famous case, you will know, of the Jew Shylock. Um, he has the right to the pound of flesh of Antonio. And they appeal to him for mercy. They appeal to make restitution of any of the financial loss and more besides. And he's just implacable, isn't he? No, I will have my pound of flesh, knowing that in extracting that, it will take the very life of Antonio. And uh, if you know anything of the play, you know the bitterness that's in his heart and why he got him into this position in, fir in the first place. It was all a maneuvering to exact vengeance on this uh, individual, and uh, if you know any of those speeches of Shylock, um, they just drip with the hatred that he has for Antonio, and now he's got him, and he's not going to show him mercy, not for any appeal, and perhaps one of the most well-known um, speeches of Shakespeare comes from um, the quality of mercy is not strained comes down from heaven and so forth. If you know that speech, it's a great speech of written by um, Shakespeare under common grace to uh, demonstrate that mercy, first of all, is a divine um, attribute and is to be reflected, therefore, uh, in image bearers uh, in men. Well, we're not Shylock and we're not Antonio, but we are the people God has made us. Are we merciful? Or well, sadly, can it be even as Christians, we're far too often like a Shylock 
I just want what I think I'm ought, and I'm not willing to listen to any appeal for mercy. Of course, our Lord Jesus taught us to even love our enemies, did he not? Not just to show mercy to friends, to brethren, but to our enemies, calling us to be merciful even as our Father is merciful, Luke 6, verse 36. We have received great mercy, brethren, have we not? It should humble us to the dust when we refuse to show mercy and when we're glad to receive the mercy of God ourselves. How tragic that is. And yet how so often that can be the case, can't it? We, we forget. We're like that servant of the, the story that Jesus told, who having been forgiven much, he goes out and finds the one who owes him so little and will not show mercy. He throws him into jail. And how outraged the master is, you remember, when the other servants tell him of that. And he drags that servant and said, but look at what mercy I extended to you. And you were glad to receive that. And yet you were unwilling to show so much less mercy to the one who owed you. Now we must balance this, of course, that God is just. God is holy. God does not wink at sin. He doesn't trifle with sin. He does not ignore sin. He is the just and holy God, but he's a God also of mercy and compassion, and it is that that is front and center before us here. Well, then that brings us in the fourth place to refuge cities. Refuge cities, verses 7 through 9. Three refuge cities lay on each side of the River Jordan because, uh, as you will know, Um, When the conquest was complete, then uh, the tribes lived on both sides of the Jordan. And so in order for there to be an accessible city uh, to each and every Israelite who may need it, then they were distributed throughout the whole land. Notice also here that the refuge cities were set apart for both Israelites and for strangers. It wasn't just for native Israelites showing us here again that God was just as concerned with justice for Gentiles in the land as much as he was for his own covenant people. Again, that speaks to us about our attitude of justice and mercy and for who is it? Who do we want to receive it? Who should have the benefit of that? Well, certainly ourselves, right? We always think we should have justice and mercy. We shouldn't be deprived of that. And then we kind of start extending circles out in connection easily with us. Well, of course, my family and, of course, my friends and, of course, my church, fellow believers. Um, But what about the stranger? What about that question the Lord Jesus asked, so who is your neighbor? What about that Samaritan with whom you have no other particular connection in this world at the present time? Should they have the right to the blessing of God's provision of mercy? Paul put it this way in New Testament terms, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So yes, we have a special responsibility for those who are in the church, fellow believers. 
to do good generally, to show mercy in particular, but that does not mean we exclude others, those who are our neighbors by being virtue of humankind as we are. We're not to exclude them from acts of kindness, ministries of mercy, and especially justice. Well, then that brings us in the fifth place to um, flee for refuge, this um, concluding exhortation admonition. The cities of refuge not only teach us principles of justice, mercy, and compassion, which they surely do, but they also have what we call a redemptive significance, a redemptive significance. It is significant that... um, After Joshua chapter 20 in the scriptures, the focus is never so much then on physical places of refuge, cities in the land of Canaan, but much more on pointing to the Lord himself as the real and lasting refuge of his people. So not a physical place to go, but a person to whom you are to go. Psalm 2.12, for instance, all who take refuge in the Lord are blessed. The prophets, Isaiah 14 at verse 32, in Zion, the city of God, the afflicted may find refuge. And so all who trusted in Israel's God would find in him a sanctuary of safety and peace. Now, we don't have time this morning, though it's an excellent study to trace through all of the Scriptures, uh, the reference of God as the place of refuge, the sanctuary, the resting place of His people. But I want to bring us, as we start to come to a close, to just two more references. And in these in particular, not only do they refer to God as our refuge, but specifically, they point to that in connection to a future fulfillment, and indeed to the coming messianic age in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, again, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 4, verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And then in the prophecy of Zephaniah, perhaps not a prophet you turn to very often, but uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 in verses 11 and 12. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge, where? In the name of the Lord. So then what is the exhortation? What is the admonition? If God is our refuge, as he surely is, 
to which these cities were only pictures, pointers, directors to the great reality, then like the manslayer, we are to flee to him this morning. We are to flee to him. The verb here that's rendered to flee is a key term here, a key idea in Joshua chapter 20. It's repeated again and again. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 9. To flee is to seek safety, to seek salvation, is it not? To flee is to find one in whom one can trust for such refuge. Indeed, it's one of the key terms for the act of faith in the Old Testament, to seek refuge. When the Lord delivered David from his enemies all around him, uh, he confessed this, 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 4, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Again and again, the Old Testament scriptures speak of God in this way as our refuge, our sanctuary, the one who provides with shelter, safety, and salvation. But as God's revelation progressively unfolds, and as we come to the full light of the New Testament scriptures, it becomes increasingly clear until we have that shining of the noonday sun in God's revelation that the true and lasting refuge of God's people is in the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, in the Lord, but particularly and specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amidst the many warnings against apostasy and the assurance of God's covenant promises, the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, describes Christians in, these way, in this way as those who have fled to Christ for refuge. I think the author to the Hebrews knew Joshua chapter 20 from the Old Testament. I think he did. Because God wants his people, his children. He wants them to be assured, to be convinced, to be certain of the hope that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The writer says he not only gave his promise, as we're thinking of that key term in the book of Joshua, he's given his promise, but he confirmed it with an oath, the author says. So he says, Hebrews six eighteen, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And therefore, all those, therefore, who seek refuge in Jesus for salvation have that sure and steadfast hope. Because as our great high priest, he by his death and resurrection has entered, the author of Hebrews tells us, into the holy place of all, not just the copy here below, but into the very reality in the heavenly sanctuary itself, and thereby offering himself, secured our everlasting salvation, Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. When the manslayer 
found refuge in one of these earthly sanctuary cities. He had to live there until the death of the high priest at that particular time, Joshua 20, verse 6, and then he was allowed to go home. That particular regulation you might wonder about, what's its significance? I think at least we can say this. It was a regulation that foreshadowed a New Testament parallel, certainly, and possibly at least a fulfillment through the death of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that we can go home, brothers and sisters? Not to the property we happen to live in today, but to our heavenly home. How is it that we can go home? To our eternal heavenly home, to be with the Lord, to commune with him forever and ever because of the death of our high priest. Because of the death of our high priest. Here's how you preach the gospel of Joshua because it points to a great Joshua. One who was the great champion of his people, the great king, the one who is the great prophet, and the one who is the great priest, all in one. It's through the death of this one, standing in the place of his people, that we are set free and can go home. So let me ask you as we close, have you been set free this morning? Do you know the mercy of God in Jesus Christ that's so beautifully pictured here in these cities of refuge? If not, then flee to Christ this morning whilst you may. Cast yourself upon him for the salvation he freely offers in the gospel, and you will be saved. What are you by nature? Guilty sinner. Not just unintentionally. And your father Adam, he knew what he ought not to have done. In the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And he did it. We as his descendants, guilty in him as our representative, our sins are never unintentional in that sense. Some in the particulars may be, but as sinners by nature, we're not unintentional sinners. We're sinners by what we are by nature. And yet there is mercy, there is grace, because one paid the price the blood price for us in his own blood upon the cross. And because of that, the Lord himself promises to all that will trust in him. John 6 verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. I will never cast out. Come to him this morning. You have no warrant this morning to accuse the Lord that he will cast you away, that he will deny you if you will truly repent of your sins and trust in his Son. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Amen. Let's all pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture in the book of Joshua of the cities of refuge. We thank you for the one to whom... They appoint the Lord Jesus, the great refuge of his people. Grant each one this morning to flee to him 
whether for the first time or again and again and again as we do, for we have no hope but in him. Hear us and help us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.